Welcome to the Masculinity Podcast, conversations about masculinity, men, and our relationships with them. My name's Mel, and I invite you to pop the kettle on, make a mug of your hot beverage of choice, and join us for a relaxed and open conversation. This week, uh, for the first episode of the Masculinity Podcast, I've invited my friend Chris to come on and, and talk with us um, and have a chat about what masculinity is and uh, where we get this uh, notion of, of maleness and masculinity from. I met Chris a number of years ago. Um, he appeared in my life uh, randomly, seemingly randomly, but uh, we've, we've formed this uh, fantastic friendship and I think it was about a year ago that we started having this conversation about masculinity. Um, and Chris uh, has a very unique perspective. I don't know if you want to say anything, Chris, about uh, your background. Uh, well, first off, thanks for thanks for having me, and thanks for creating this space. I think it's a really important conversation and topic, and I really appreciate the thoughtfulness and the care that you bring to it thank you me I um, I was raised in a very traditional Roman Catholic uh, upbringing and family so my um, experience and formation of masculinity is a very interesting one and we could talk a bit about that in terms of its formation and then I um, eventually ended up pursuing sort of seminary and monastic life and religious life for a time and um, eventually left that, um, became a husband, father, and um, now work um, more one-on-one with people and what I call soul work. You've you've had a an interesting journey. I remember when you first reached out, seeing your Facebook profile, and being like, "Who's this white guy standing behind a pulpit? Why is he reaching out to me? I don't quite get this." Yeah, I have a bit of a strange set of <laughs> ways that come together, but uh, hopefully, it all comes together in a fairly cohesive, integrated perspective. I hope, anyway. You were you were one of my kind of people when you started using like Star Wars references and talking about spirituality. I was like, yes, yes, this guy's cool. I actually love kind of the mythology and the cosmology and the ritual and mystery and sacramental and smells and bells and saints. And, you know, I love the wildness and the weirdness of spirituality and religion and stuff but i didn't do too well with the politics and the sort of social customs which is how i ended up flying solo <laughs> it's, uh, that kind of makes me think of uh, the star wars prequels versus the original movies like the prequels have mm. way too much of the politics involved <laughs> yeah they do they do. We could do a whole thing on that. But, well, uh, you know, that, that, that's a kind of nice tangent uh, to start talking about masculinity because mm-hmm. Star Wars is all based on this, the, the hero's journey. Um, and uh, there's definitely a tie in there with uh, 
with the role of, of maleness and masculinity and that idea of the hero. Um, you know, I, I've been chewing on these ideas a lot, especially like we started having this email exchange about the rewilding of masculinity about a year ago. Um, and I remember that was spurned on by a very particular article, which I'm not going to link to here because it wasn't that great, but it spurned on this conversation, which is fantastic. Um, and, you know, I, I'm someone who loves men and um, I see a lot of men around me struggling at the moment. And, you know, my experience of gender, I get is different from other people's experiences of gender. Um, and I, I'm really trying to wrap my head around this and try to understand what is it that society is, uh, has, has been telling men about their relationship to masculinity, like what the expectation is. And, you know, it seems like a lot of that does come from the, the like Abrahamic religion, the patriarchal sort of structure of like masculinity. And I see a lot of people trying to go back to something that predates that. Um, but then I, I get kind of confused. I'm like, well, how much do we know about that? And what's, what's authentic in there. And just, these are the rabbit holes that my brain goes into. <laughs> yeah, no, they're really important ones actually. Um, Cause when we throw out words like, you know, patriarchy is a big, it's obviously a strong term, especially in contemporary fights of various natures. Um, you know, and it can get, sort of launched around this is patriarchal that's patriarchal the patriarchy you know it's all it and there's actually lots of different kinds of masculinity or masculinities within what we typically think of as patriarchy so like i don't know a very simplistic counterpoint would be i was raised in a very traditional you could even call it patriarchal religious upbringing but it was the kind of patriarchy that you would see in like, I was raised traditionally Roman Catholic. You'd see it with Mormons. You see it with um, a lot of kind of evangelical Christian types, which is the strong, loving, sort of caring father, husband, you know, like moral exemplar for the family, um, the good man who works hard dutiful works for his family right that's a certain kind of masculinity that's a certain version i was going to say there's something about that um that certainty that also incorporates certainty with other gender roles like the the mother is this archetypal feminine nurturing looking after the home kind of thing right and then there's like everyone everyone knows that's there that's their thing. Totally. That's the arena that they totally. play in. Yeah. And if it turns out you're a young boy growing into your adolescence and you start to have feelings for other boys, then things are going to get problematic because that's not, that's not allowed. You know, that's not part of the gig in that system. So it has those, it certainly has plenty of, and I'm not here to sort of romanticize that by any stretch of the imagination, but it's a very different kind of patriarchal, version of masculinity than say i don't know donald trump or something right this kind of um predator you know the world is kind of a jungle killer be killed there's only winners and losers um you know stomp on people you know everybody is a 
conquest or an object of your own gratification or like machismo kind of stuff. Like I was never raised in that. That sounds to me like what people are describing as toxic masculinity, that, um, that conquest, uh, uh, environment, which is very different from how you described being raised, which is like, it, it's still patriarchal, but it's like, it's a healthy expression. Like the man is, um, a source of strength, not a source of, um, fear. Right. And I mean, I think what those point to is what I'm always curious about is this kind of discussion. You'll, we'll see often where it's like real men do X. I always get fascinated by this, whether whatever X is real men are feminists, real men are dominate, you know, whatever, like your classic versions of, and my thought is always, you know, all men are real. Like, there's no unreal men. <laughs> there's everybody's real ontologically. But, um, you know, men can be more, we can be more or less compassionate. We can be wiser or more foolish. We can be, you know, more aggressive or more caring. We can be any kinds of, you know, anywhere along the spectrum. But this kind of tendency to create a prototype of this is the real man. This is the good man, whatever that is. Donald Trump's version of that versus what I was raised in versus some like, I don't know, yoga, divine warrior, third way man version thing, whatever. Like that's a, like a, a new agey man thing. That's like, that's a, that's a version of, of that. And it's always interesting to me that masculinity is so often defined as an external prototype that's based in arguments about the good man or the real man or the fake men, as opposed to having those men decide for themselves what they consider to be their own generative masculinity. So whenever you have like men's movements or any of these things, they always create this kind of ideal prototype. And then a man is always judged according to whatever that specific standard is. I'm just trying to imagine combining all these expectations into one and what that would look like. And I just came up with this image that I guess it looks kind of like He-Man with the overmuscularized and, and yeah. the cure for hair. But, you know, when you talked about the spiritual uh, the spiritual warrior, I'm like, okay, so his hair's longer and he's got like beads and like a tattoo to honor the goddess. Right. <laughs> and he's standing there in tree pose. And totally. And it's just kind of, maybe that would be for a guy or specific kind of men. Like maybe that would really be them. Like that's maybe that's really who they are, in which case like good on you. But this, the problem of course becomes, what if that's not who you are? What if that's not who a man is? And it's like, I don't want to be that guy, you know? And so there's so much, um, you know, sort of conformity on the one hand or a lot of unconscious rebelling against those enforced stereotypes Mm. and both of those problems end up being kind of flip sides of the same coin. Usually I'd say. Yeah. That, that whole feeling of, I don't want to be that guy. I've heard that phrase expressed by so many of my male friends. And, you know, whenever there's another news story about um, some guy who's behaved in awful ways, they're like, I don't want to be that guy. How do I not be that guy? 
And um, it's really interesting what you're saying about this, this very narrow field of uh, options for role models. Um, you know, my, my lived experience is having been raised as a woman and being told uh, by, you know, people raising me who are feminists, like you can be whoever you want to be. And you don't have to let your, your, your physical appearance stop you um, from achieving your dreams. And even with those messages, I still internalize a lot of, a lot of stuff, but um, I think this is an area where people don't necessarily in general, I think, tune into the fact that there are not diverse role models for um, healthy uh, male uh, role models out there. There's not much for healthy masculinity. Um, you know, we glorify people who we glorify men who um, are uh, businessmen and uh, warriors, and you know, like they're not necessarily behaving in ethically great ways. Some of them are, and there's definitely a movement towards that, which is great. You know, we do have some uh, conscientious global leaders and conscientious businessmen in the world these days, but. Um, there's certainly a, a lack of role modeling and um, just a lack of options. Yeah, it keeps going back to the, like, you have to be this way to be a man or you are nothing. And that feels like a lot of pressure for young boys to have on their shoulders. Yeah, it's a very, and it's, and I'm sure this is true too in different ways for girls, for women, you know, there's just uh, a lot of mixed messages, right? Especially right now things are really in a lot of turmoil and upheaval with you know legitimate movements and people criticizing things which often need to be criticized but in the midst of a lot of it's hard to find a signal in the noise i've often said actually because you know more the world i come from and more the when i think of these questions you know i kind of want to locate myself you know i when i'm thinking more like Typically, I'm thinking more kind of to speak really generically, like straight guy world, right? Like, and I've often said for men in that place that I actually think that perhaps the most interesting place to look for a model might actually be the gay male liberation movement in the 70s mm. and 80s, particularly kind of the radical stuff, because... For me, what's interesting about those men is that they defined their own masculinity, right? I mean, they really, obviously in the face of opposition and terrible prejudice and ostracism and all kinds of things, but they came to define their own understanding of masculinity, their own understanding of their desires, and their own sense of brotherhood and solidarity. Um, and I've always thought that's a much more interesting potential model, not like, not some cheesy, like straight guy should all go metro metrosexual or something dumb like that. I mean, like in a much deeper way, like look to that kind of model of a movement that was created versus say, you know, some of the stuff that like the return the attempted return of certain kinds of masculinities nowadays that in explicit you know battle mode in an explicit kind of siege mentality like our masculinity is under attack and you know and you get that in kind of the alt-right and uh 
neo-fascisty type scenarios that has a very certain kind of masculinity associated with it too, right? So I see various kinds of movements of men trying to form themselves, but I, many of them are coming under a kind of wounded or siege mentality. And I don't think that's a good place to be kind of orienting from necessarily. And you're talking about the the gay men of the 70s and 80s. I immediately mm. thought of Freddie Mercury because I just watched Bohemian. Yeah. Like, you know, all through watching that movie, I kept thinking to myself, holy shit, like, this guy had balls. And, yeah. and like, to to be a gay man who straight men looked up to as a sex symbol was really radical. And, I mean, David Bowie did that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he was bisexual too. And so to, to be a queer man in the public eye, but still be closeted about your queerness, but it oozes through in everything that Freddie mm-hmm. Murphy did um, and be celebrated for that. That was so radical. And, and I wonder like how much of the appeal of queen was because it, it offered this thing and you look at the rest of the band and they're, you know, like I love John Deacons just like always there. And his like, he just rolled out of bed. <laughs> he's, he's like yeah. the hardworking dad. Who's like, just do all this job. And then I'm going to go home and, you know, have tea. Um, yeah. I think you're onto something there. They definitely, there's definitely some good role modeling that happened back then. And, you know, I look at what we have in the media today and there's more fringe celebrity stuff happening, you know, with YouTube stars and things like that. But certainly in the Mm. mass consumption media, it doesn't feel like we've got um, the same kind of role models. Maybe it's just like it, it, no one's breaking new ground in that way. Um, But yeah. 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 I mean, I think at the end of the day, that's, for me, an important part of a kind of masculinity going forward is you get to define it for yourself. You know, if you're a man or you're someone who identifies as a man, um, it should be much more your own choice, you know, rather than these, are you, you know, are you a tough guy or are you a nerd? Are you a dork? Are you a, you know, are you a, you know, beer and football kind of guy? Like, I read comic books. I watch football. I meditate and read spiritual literature. <laughs> like we, I listen to rock music. Like I can be, I'm not going to be uh, so easily categorized by these kind of simplistic, basically extensions of kind of high school click kind of mentality, like yeah. the jocks, the nerds, the whatever. And, and, you know, which one do you fit into? Well, what if you're a human being who's, surprisingly like got lots of different aspects that are in interesting creative tension with one another yeah in high school you're not allowed to be part of multiple cliques you you have to pick one and and stick with it um which always baffled me and and there's there's similar cliques for for young girls in schools um Mm -hmm. but you know and that's one of those places where i start wondering like how much of this is nature and how much of this is nurture? Like if we, we start doing this so early on, is it just that we've been conditioned so early on? Is there something about the way that our brain uh, creates order in, in the way that we relate to the world around us that we need to have these little pockets of groups? Like, oh, those are the jocks. I'm one of the nerds. Um, I, and, 
and how long have we been doing that for like like did did we do that back in back in caveman days did we do that in medieval europe like what do we when did this start the the word masculine itself i mean this is something we've chatted on from time to time um you know if you look up the etymology of the word the first definition is male so this is one of these things where when people always tell me about the masculine or the divine masculine doesn't mean men. I'm like, actually the word masculine means men. <laughs> it's exactly what it means. Um, first, so first definition of masculine is male, specifically male biological sex. Second and following right on that. Um, and this really has a lot to do you mentioned like sort of the Abrahamic traditions, the Greco-Roman tradition, the Germanic traditions that kind of form the Western cultural sort of melange. Um, second definition is attributes classically associated with being male, which consist of virility, strength, power, rationality. And that's the classic understanding of masculinity. And that's where you get this kind of very narrowing tendency. And then this kind of, this is what a real man is like. And then every man is sort of knows that he's judged by a standard outside of himself. Mm -hmm. He knows that his value as a human being, as a specifically male human being, is defined by adherence to an external criteria which he may or may not sign up for, but he knows that is how he will be judged and perceived. And that's, I think, where the deep disconnect for a lot of men starts, and it can start very, very young as a boy. The deep disconnect with our own sense of ourselves and our own sense of our autonomy and make our own decisions and live with the interesting, beautiful ambiguities and complexities of being a human. Instead, it's this, like, Here's the prototype outside of you. You know that you will be judged whether you do a good job according to these criteria, whatever they might be. And voila, you're set to go. When you're when you're talking about the that classic role of what a male is and the virility and the strength right. and all that, like and I mean certainly for for you know our generation, like kids growing up were watching he-man cartoons and and then there's all the evolutions of that and and yeah it sets this impossible standard that we have to hold ourselves to um in terms of you know what the expectation of masculinity is and it sets up an inherently i would say problematic and antagonistic relationship with girls and women mm. because the unstated kind of shadow side of that or the flip side of that is if masculinity is virile and strong and powerful and, you know, rational, and then the feminine is, of course, going to be defined as emotional, hysteric, irrational, weak, servile, etc., uh, which are your classic dainty feminine kind of descriptions. And, and if you're a boy or a man, the worst thing you can get called is either a girl or gay. Mm -hmm. right and gay is sort of like a code word for you're really like a girl in a man's body which is nonsense but that's how it's perceived anyway by these kind of stereotypical problematic assumptions and 
that's the thing you never you can never get called so if you show emotion that's a girl thing that's a feminine thing now you're feminine effeminate you know and that's like you got your you got your man card it's gonna get revoked or something if you it's just a terrible mess it really screws people screws us up (laughs) the emotion piece is really interesting like i see it as there's this emotional pie and um there is one slice that men are given they're they're told like you you can have this piece of pie but you can't touch the rest of the pie and and women are told you can have the rest of the pie but that one piece is only the men are allowed to have that and that one piece is anger for sure you know as as a woman um if i get angry um you know i'm told i'm being a bitch i'm being this da, da, da. and it makes right. perfect sense cuz you know anger is an emotion that's going to bring up the that strength and that mm-hmm. uh ability and and all of that and and there's often a, a lot of rationality to anger but it gets dismissed as irrationality cuz you you're not supposed to get angry you're dainty and and beautiful and soft and <laughs> exactly yeah, and the rest of the pie is grief, sorrow, you know, fear, tenderness, confusion. Um, and those are, you're right, those are totally off limits in the classic stereotypical man code, boy code kind of model. Um, so you end up with a bunch of guys who go to anger when they're actually really sad. And then you have a bunch of women going to sadness when they're really pissed off. And then if they're heterosexuals anyway, put them together and watch the sparks fly. (laughs) Yikes. There's a lot of shaming um, when men express emotions that are anger. You know, anger, they're allowed to do that on the sports field. They're allowed to do that in politics. Um, uh, They're allowed to do that in business, but if you express anything that's not anger, you know, anything that's going to basically be vulnerable, you're, you're not wearing your armor, you're no longer a warrior. Uh, There's a lot of shaming that comes around that. I remember being 16 years old and I was on a school trip camping in the Jordanian desert because this is the kind of school I went to. We went camping in the Jordanian desert for a school trip. And, and there was a guy, um, in my grade who was there and we were, we were getting snuggly and making out. And I remember we were just talking about life and he suddenly got very emotional and he started crying. And mm-hmm. I'm, you know, me, I'm, I've got that rescuer complex. I'm like, right. Oh my goodness, are you okay? And, and I'm, I'm totally happy to hold space for him and, and to talk to him. And I'm already in that counselor mode, even at 16. And, and he shut down completely. He was like, no, I'm fine. And he yeah. didn't want to talk about it. And he felt really ashamed that this girl he had a crush on had seen him in such a vulnerable state. And and that moment has stuck with me for a very long time. And, and I mean, I've seen a lot of men cry and I don't know what it is. I, I seem to have the kind of um, vibe or personality or presence that men can feel safer to open up about vulnerable stuff with me um but i see them like shut down or try to like lock that that pain and that sorrow in a little box inside because they're afraid that there's some judgment that's going to come about because of this vulnerability that they have um and that breaks my heart because that vulnerability is 
can be a source of so much strength. I, you know, I, I have a lot of male clients who I work with in, in some degrees with this, but it's more, it comes up in my interpersonal relationships where I really see the, the, the big through lines of emotion. And I go, how the heck do I help these men um, to work through that shame and to feel emotionally expressed? It's a really great point you're making. And you do have, I mean, I think this very conversation is kind of part of that. Um, you do, you do give off a, a clear sense that you care and that it is safe and that is important because, and it is heartbreaking because there's a lot of, a lot of boys and men who don't have that, any form of connection, male, female, human, whatever, um, where they can actually bring that black box out of the deep down hidden space. I mean, every, every guy knows that we have a box somewhere deep down that we maybe have shown to a few people, maybe not like some, some of them haven't even shown their wives or their partners, maybe ever. Um, and it is a significant part of being human to mature, to, to come into contact with that part of life. And it's not that that's the, the whole of everything, but the whole has to include whatever is normally kept in that box. Mm-hmm whether it's shame about pains and wounds and traumas, whether it's confusions about different aspects of yourself that don't fit the man code or whatever, um, whatever it might be, whatever a guy is kind of hiding in there, it, it needs to find a way to come to the light and to be held. Otherwise, it will, it will come out. It'll find a way out, but it won't be in a pleasant manner. You know, it ends up weirdly kind of reinforcing the shame. It'll come out in a sideways way. Mm. Might be a scandal, might be an ethical lapse, might be a betrayal, might be something that then is causes pain to that person or to others. And then it goes like, put it right back in the box. Because I told you this thing was bad and I let it out. And now look what happened. It's exactly what I knew all along. It's bad. And now bad stuff has happened and people are hurt and I'm a bad person. So it's lying in the shadow. And, you know, again, these kind of, even though they're well-meaning often, these like, you know, spiritual men thing or the mythopoetic men and it's like the magician and the warrior and the king and you know and the lover and you know all these like archetypes that get sort of pumped up it's where's the archetype for the the black box Mm. you know where's that archetype um where's the image for that one is not the whole story but certainly an integral part of the whole story well, it's interesting you bring up the the men's movements because um, it's something that I've been really, I've been interested in. Like my ex-husband did the the Sterling Men's Weekend, which is a whole, mm. whole interesting right. uh, experience, <laughs> yeah. uh, which I hopefully will have someone else to talk about too <laughs> here in the podcast. But, you know, the I, I have a lot of, uh, of male friends who've been exploring different kinds of things like Mankind Project and... Um, Samurai mm-hmm. Brotherhood and Sterling Men's and and other 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 kinds of things and um, you know the mythopoetic stuff and 
And th- there's definitely some some wonderful things going on there. Like I see these men uh, really getting in touch with um, other expressions of how to be male. Like at least there's a diversity of archetypes that they can choose from. And, and, um, and I see them learning how to do that emotional holding for one another uh, and learning how to support each other in processing the difficult things, which is a huge relief, you know, as a woman who's friends to these men, I'm like, yeah, great. Go, you go process that because (laughs) I charge people for that now. Um, (laughs) And, and that's wonderful, but I, I get a little bit concerned sometimes about, um, you know, are we just reinforcing these uh, sort of stoic, uh, unemotional role models? Like where, where's the, uh, where's the breakdown? Like, and a lot of these groups are very secretive. Like we're going to come here and we're going to be men and yes, we'll have emotional releases and, and bonding. But then as soon as we're done, we don't talk about what happened in this weekend to anyone. And I get like the the uh, the confidentiality is a really important piece of creating that uh, space of safety that people can feel uh, safe to be more vulnerable in. But you know, if if the vulnerability is limited to those spaces only, are we actually making a difference? I don't know. Yeah, you're making. It's a very good question, and it's a really you know sort of fascinating topic that. One of the things that, you know, is kind of something I focus on a lot is the kind of history of teachings. This is kind of, I studied history, I studied philosophy, I studied theology, spirituality. So I, I know sort of the background of these ideas. And oftentimes that larger context in history is lost. And then people feel like, oh, you're attacking my thing, but it made me feel better. And like, well, it's, that's not that simple really, but you know, people can get very emotionally attached to whatever their pet thing is because it helped them, which is great. And I'm not here to bash that, but when it comes to something like the mythopoetic or men's movement stuff, you know, that has its roots in Jung, for example, And Jung's notion of the animus, which is the supposedly masculine essence, and the anima, which is the feminine essence, and everybody is supposed to have both, right? That's the whole idea there. And integration means coming into contact with both. And but the you know Jung's background was very Victorian. His notions of what's the masculine and what's the feminine were not archetypal principles that drop down from the heavens that he read about in some ancient hermetic Egyptian text. <laughs> like it also had a huge impact on the world in which he was raised, which did have these very kind of standard, this is masculinity, this is femininity. And while, you know, things have evolved and grown in certain ways, those ideas are very deeply rooted in those traditions and people and again so if you look at like the classic four major archetypes that are usually used king warrior magician lover they're trying to get at like they're trying to get kind of like around the bases of the major aspects of being human so the like lover is supposed to be the emotional side and the magician supposed to be the spiritual side and the warriors the kind of physical instinctual 
doer in the world and the king is supposed to be some kind of integrative functioning of sovereignty and free choice so like okay like i get that that's cool but still you can see the limitations of even that model which has at least you know four and it has something of a kind of well-rounded attempt but you can also hear like wait a minute but there's other stuff going on than just that there has to be more than just those dimensions and there has to be more than there has to be a more free choice for the individuals to determine their own agency in the world period and for men to define for themselves what their version of masculinity means not you're supposed to be a samurai you're supposed to be a warrior you're supposed to be a heart warrior you're supposed to be a this you're supposed to be a that those can be helpful but they also become deeply limiting at a certain point like to really mature and further deepen really becomes much more about spontaneity much more about authenticity autonomy and one's own generativity and then you can kind of make up the archetypes as you go for each man you know yeah something that i find is missing in those those four primordial archetypes of masculinity that you described is the 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 healer like where where is the person who can yeah. embody compassion and empathy and um generosity i mean i guess the lover maybe is supposed to encompass some of that but then to limit those expressions is like you can only do this if you're a lover uh feel feels a little bit disingenuous right. whereas you know when when that archetype is applied to women you know women are expected to be endlessly compassionate and and giving and generous right um and there must be something wrong with us if we ever have to stop that that's a place that i i come up against when i am looking at those archetypes and and the the mythopoetic stuff and i'm like well why can't you be a nurturer and a warrior why can't you be a healer and a lover you know why can't these two things exist together and i, I mean i really hope that there's a future where there is more conversation about that of of how men can uh, can embody those roles with strength. Um, it's like there there's this myth that being empathetic means that you're going to be weak, that you're not going to be able to make rational decisions, and you can see that in yeah. in the politics these days. I mean, you you brought up Trump right at the beginning of the podcast, so uh, you know that is someone who does not experience <laughs> a whole lot of empathy. <laughs> and, um, yeah. And, you know, like that, and then that's being role modeled that we have to shut off from empathy uh, and that men are expected to shut off empathy. And then women start to copy that too. Um, and, you know, we really lose a lot of our humanity when we shut off from uh, really receiving the reality of somebody else's experience. And, and then that, I see that playing into violations of boundaries and consent issues and so forth right when we when we shut off from our empathy we tend to assume that everyone's doing however great we are and um we assume that everybody else will want what we want with them and so that's where the uh we start to get into that that sticky murky territory of um how toxic masculinity can play out in the world yeah my you're drawing an important thread or line there because um yeah i mean yeah. then we're really into the arena of trauma which is the pervasive reality 
of most human beings, and certainly in this conversation, most boys and men's experience of a broad nature and then specifically sort of gender-focused types of trauma. And when there's trauma, there's only so many options available. Like one is to try to drink it away, basically, you know? So then you would have a whole, you start to see kind of, rather than these kind of like falsely created kind of gender war stuff that's hyped up in the media, I think a trauma lens is a much more interesting and illuminating one for building, like you said, common humanity and solidarity. You know, so you can either sort of use, you know, drink to death or drugs or porn or endless sort of computer games dissociated out into, you know, sort of this non-slightly real but not super real dematerialized kind of world. That's one option. And you see a bunch of guys just kind of lost, just kind of lost generation of men just sort of floating in the ether. You can pass it on. You can get hurt. And then you decide this is too much for me to take. Here, let's play hot potato and I'll give you my trauma. And that's what you're talking about with boundary, boundary violations. Or you can suck it in. You can keep it in. And don't hurt anybody else, but keep it in that box. And that leads to all the classic sort of massive underreporting of like male depression and suicide and illnesses, you know, that whole, that's that route. Or, or it can be transformed. And that's where a person really becomes, like you were saying earlier, like a nurturer and a warrior a healed being and a powerful being, soft and bright and full of power. And I think archetypal stuff or attempts to create specific prototypes, even the good ones, that's not as deep to me as the ability to transform our trauma into power Mm. and into healing. That to me is where a real kind of development, at that point you're really developing your own masculinity. I think about the young men who um, self-identify as incels and, um, and, and other men who are drawn right. into those conversations about men's rights and, and so forth. And I, I see a lot of uh, people in the feminist spheres getting incredibly angry about it, understandably, uh, given the level of violence that uh, some people have justified. Mm-hmm. And I, I go to like, well, what, what's really going on there? What's at the root of that? And what you were just saying there made me think about, you know, boys and men have been traumatized by the expectations of masculinity and the, the stereotypical impression of, of a guy who identifies as, as an incel is that he might be socially awkward. Maybe he's um, actually, you know, impaired with social skills. Like he, uh, is from you know another language or culture or maybe he's on the spectrum um, and then uh, that he you know is average looking but doesn't match that uh, I keep going back to he-man he's not he-man he doesn't have that <laughs> right he's a beta yeah. yeah he's he's that beta male he doesn't have that overtly virile thing going on and and you know the the story that a lot of these men have about them, themselves is 
what seems to be the thing that sabotages them that they are um that they are beta and that they're not attractive and and so on and so forth and all of that just sounds like this uh this self-flagellating uh shame story that's rooted in in the very limited ideas of what masculinity is allowed to be and you know, I look at some of these men and I'm like, you're, you're beautiful. You're, you're handsome. You're intelligent. Like you've got so much to give and, and you're, you're finding this kind of identity validation in a space that's filled with anger and resentment. And that's a victim state. And that victim state comes from when you are traumatized and you don't know how to get out of your trauma, you find strength through, uh, through digging your heels into that victimhood. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting you brought that topic up. It's a really, and I appreciate the nuance that you bring to it. Um, yeah, I mean, the men's rights activist thing, I always thought was one of the most interesting aspects of it, I thought, was that it was maybe the only one, but certainly one of the only few places I had ever noticed, like when it first started getting ramped up, I remember, uh, where I saw men talking openly about like talk about the black box. They were talking about issues of being emotionally and physically and sexually Mm. abused as children. And especially not entirely, but often from female caregivers. Right. And that was a big, that was a big taboo subject in this era when supposedly we, everybody gets to bring forward their pains and everybody's supposed to be heard and such. And they were saying, I think with some validity, Hey, like, what about this? This doesn't fit people's easy political stereotypes. It cuts across some grains and, but where they took it, you know, it's the classic thing. Like when the person comes in contact with their pain is the possibility of the the transformation or like you said they can get stuck and then it basically became a place where that initial really powerful point was turned into feminists and women hate men or anti-men and then it went really scapegoaty very fast and it became attempt to get rid of one's trauma by put it on somebody else and then everybody then certainly understandably feminist types and so on got allergic and very afraid and upset about that dimension, understandably, but, and then kind of criticized that and then kind of said, that's what the whole thing is about. And meanwhile, there's still this topic that's untouched of how are those men going to transform from that wounding so that they do not hurt themselves. They do not hurt others, but actually become persons of you know power and empathy mm-hmm. and love in the world and that got missed i think that got missed in this big let's turn it into a political you know gender war and just yell at each other on the internet on it it is that what you described earlier that that trauma hot potato like we're just going to pass our trauma around and you know i right. i i look at it through a feminist therapy perspective lens of um, so much of the behavior of human beings and our, and our mental health and our emotional health is a consequence of trauma and adaptive behaviors related to trauma. And so, you know, most, most women have experienced trauma of being limited mm-hmm. and, and being repressed. 
And I think that because women, we aren't used to seeing men as being creatures who can be vulnerable and emotional. Women who have experienced extreme trauma don't think that uh, their actions might affect men the same way that they were affected by the actions of others. And so I've certainly seen this. I saw this play out between my parents where my mother would say some incredibly mean and, and cruel things. And my father would just kind of shrug it off. And that, that's that stereotype of like the nagging woman and the, the sort of beaten down uh, right. guy. Um, and I, I think that plays out in, in much more um, visceral uh, and harmful ways too, um, in, in physical ways as well. And I remember having that, that epiphany in my, my late 20s of like, holy shit, like men aren't just always wanting sex. <laughs> oh. right surprise we're actually humans oh my God. <laughs> what you mean men are not just always pursuing sex all the time and if you know like i'm a woman who sometimes wants to pursue sex and suddenly realizing you know what a guy i was dating at the time like wait i want sex and you don't what's that about yeah is that allowed to be a thing is there something wrong with you and yeah and, and I've seen, you know, I've seen a lot of men with when they don't have sexual desire for their partners, that like something must be wrong with me. I better take some Cialis or Viagra. Totally. And, and a lot of men internalize this huge amount of shame when they've been sexually assaulted. Um, you know, yeah. for a heterosexual man who's sexually assaulted by a woman, including by a woman in who they're in a consensual relationship with, I, I hear a lot of dismissal of it. I hear a lot of normalizing of it. And, and I sometimes I question, like, should I slow down and just be like, Hey dude, do you realize that what happened was not actually okay? That you were enthusiastically yeah. on board with that. And, and she still plowed through or she manipulated you into, into doing this sexual act for her. Like, like, because I'm like, I know how much it hurts to realize that you're traumatized. Uh, and is ignorance bliss? Probably not. This is obviously stuff that needs to get addressed. Because like you said, if it doesn't get addressed, it's going to come out sideways in some other way. But I, I think that there's uh, an issue where women don't understand that they are capable of doing harm because men are not necessarily these stoic, thick-skinned beings that we've been told that they are. And that men are so determined to prove that they are these stoic, thick-skinned uh, human beings that they don't allow themselves to really feel that that violation and that pain and the trauma. Yeah, I think you're spot on. The um, I notice it when I see very strange, you see very strange combinations or sort of strange bedfellows, like an officially feminist type person woman man whatever kind of doing the like put on your big boy pants kind of spiel to men you know which i think is so weird it's like you do understand that the whole like wah wah put on your big boy pants that is like a patriarchal thing right like i'm always wanting to say to those to those feminists you're like you do understand that that's the mentality of patriarchy right and here you are officially this character who's you know down with patriarchy to the ramparts, you know, burn it down, whatever. Well, it can be insidious. Like that's a, that's a hangover. That's a, 
that's a holdover of that fairy mentality being weirdly articulated by a person who's officially opposed to it. But then if you say, hey, did you know, by the way, no, no, I'm I'm a good fighter of the good fight against patriarchy. It's like, it gets, it gives very screwy. Like, like you start, like it's starting to be just bonkers on all directions where people are getting so stuck into their various ideologies mm-hmm. that they just can't hear people. Can't. I've totally been that person who's like, Feminist, put in your big boy panties. <laughs> right, <laughs> like, mm, wait a minute. Um, well, and and I think you know we, we're so entrenched in in patriarchal norms that I see a lot yeah. of people kind of fight patriarchy with patriarchy, um, yeah. and and dom- they try to fight dominance culture with dominance culture, and I'm like, this is not. I can't see this working out in the long term. The craziest one I saw was the, what was the one where the, I think it was in, I can't remember if it was in the New York Times or something. And it was, I forget who it was, if it was a officially feminist woman, whatever, was kind of like, you know, about what all the stuff going on. And it was like, you're right, it's a witch hunt. We're coming for you. And I was like, wait a minute, feminists are in favor of witch hunts now? <laughs> hold on a second, like hold the time out. Like anybody remember the actual witch hunts and what went down there? They were not good. Wow. And Wait a minute. I'm pretty sure if I had to bet, I would bet that that woman's great, 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 great grandmother was potentially likely on the stake. You know what I mean? Like could have well been, you know, in the crosshairs of getting burned. And I'm like, these are now the people saying that this is a good idea. Didn't we learn the lesson the first time? So, but this is, this is what happens when you have, trauma energy that is unhealed um it's a difficult topic because people are often accused of then trying to blame victims which is not what's being said but you know to point out like wounded people hurt people hurt people yeah you know yeah and um and i don't care what person's whatever their men's rights activist, radical feminist, this, that, or the other is, whatever, you know, if it's getting justified, if it's just ends justify the means, that is, like you said, dominance culture, plain and simple. Even if it's officially its opposite, it's underneath just a replication of the same thing. So in your in your capacity as someone who has a, a spiritual coach and and advisor if if a young man came to you or if a middle-aged man or an old man came to you if any man came to you and said look chris i'm i'm struggling i'm i'm trying to i don't want to be part of the problem i really want to be part of the solution mm-hmm. and i i have all this shame that i'm holding about myself i don't even know how to open up that that box to to see what my emotions are what would you how would you support that guy how would what would you advise him to do that's a really good question. Well, the first thing I would always say is to try to find, would work to actually find a sense of inherent goodness, mm-hmm. right? Before we get into the trauma, before we get into shame, before it's like open the terrible black box with all this, who knows what's going to come out of there, you know, before all of that, the man would need to know that there's a part of him that is just good as he is 
that isn't determined, like that he has inherent dignity as a human being and as a specifically male human being. Like it's a good thing that there are men in this world. <laughs> like um, it's a good part of nature. It's a good part of creation. Um, that would be kind of the first piece. I think that's an important antidote because there needs to be some fundamental resource. There needs to be something to connect to and hang on to so that you, so that a person feels safe to go through the rough stuff. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, when it's time to approach some of the pain and the hurt, it's really important to go slowly. That might sound cliche, but it's really not. Um, we've been enculturated as well and trained around fast solutions, three steps, you know, to success, five steps to perfection and, you know, five minutes a day to make yourself perfect. And, you know, three steps to healthy working. masculinity. Yeah, exactly. Third stage, man. Yeah, give me a break. Um, this, this kind of stuff will actually take time. Mm. It's not some snap your finger overnight success or whatever. It's not pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It's not man up. It's not any of that. It's um, to find the deep reservoir of resilience and genuine generative power that is possible back to this kind of real rewilding aspect, like to bring our instinctual and spontaneous aspects into alignment with our deeper cognition and deeper feeling to really become an integrated human being. That takes time. That's not an easy, it's slower, it's maybe not super obvious, it might not be super flashy, according to some of the stuff that sells or gets more splash and press, but it's much more real, you know, it's just much more true, and if a man's willing to take that path, then he'll find his own soul. You know, he'll find his own, his own path in the world. And that will include certainly things like his orientation and his gender identity and look and so on. But, but it's obviously way, way more than that as well. It's not, we're not just only sexual beings. So that's obviously a big part of this. So those would be kind of the two main sort of touch points that I would start with. It's rare that a man gets hurt in the pain and not try to be, you know, advice given. But I think it's even rarer to be hurt in the pain, but also to be seen as a whole being, even in the midst of that. Mm, That's really beautiful. Thank you for sharing that, Craig. Thanks for giving me a space. You're welcome. Anytime. (laughs) Um, that feels like a really good place for us to end up our conversation here. And I just, uh, again, I just really appreciate you being willing to, um, to take this posture and open up these conversations. It really, it's really important what you're doing. Mm, Thank you, Chris. Anytime, pal. The Masculinity Podcast is made possible by the support of people like you. 
please visit my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash masculinity, M-A-S-C-U-L-I-N-I-T-E-A. Your support means the world to me. And all people who support this podcast get to join our exclusive Facebook group where the conversation continues. Join us next time where I'm going to be talking to two of my colleagues in the sex education world, Cosmo Means and Mehdi Yarvish. These are two of the individuals behind the Apollo Retreat for Men that's coming up in this spring. And we're going to be talking about men and their relationship to their sexuality. I'm really excited for that conversation and I hope you'll join us.